You may be seated. <clears throat> this Sunday morning, if we're getting closer and closer to the end of Colossians, we'll take a look at Colossians 4, verses 10 through 11, and we see in it a true redemption story. We all love redemption stories, don't we? I think one of my favorites, I'm a big baseball fan, and, and as most of you know from St. Louis, I love the Cardinals. And just this past week, there was an uh, anniversary of sorts of an occasion that was one of my favorite baseball memories ever. You might recall there, there was a pitcher for the Cardinals named Rick Ankiel, and he was an incredibly talented young pitcher. He was 19 years old, made it all the way to the major leagues as a 19-year-old, and was just had the kind of pitching ability that is very, very rarely seen. And his rookie year, he pitched extremely well for the Cardinals to the point where when it got to be the playoffs, the Cardinals made the playoffs, and the manager named him to be the starter in game one. So according to his thoughts, this is the best we have. And here he was, I think at the time, 20 years old. They rolled him out. It's like, wow, what a, what a neat moment. Well, I, whether it was the pressure or something before that, or we, we don't know what exactly happened. But I was actually at the game when this occurred. He pitched less than two innings, I believe. And in that two innings, he threw five wild pitches and walked a number of batters, hit another one. He all of a sudden forgot how to throw a baseball 60 feet and 6 inches. And it was just going everywhere. It was just the craziest thing you've ever seen. It was some kind of mental block that he had, and he couldn't do it. So they took him out and replaced him, and then about a week later, they put him back in another playoff game, and he did the exact same thing. And so they hoped he'd get better over the winter, but when springtime came, they pitched him again, and it just kept getting worse and worse and worse to where he was not able to throw a pitch that would be not just a strike, but even close to home plate. They would just be all over the place. So what did they do with him? They decided he needed to just not feel so much pressure. They sent him down to the minor leagues. He continued to struggle. They sent him down to the lowest level of minor leagues and said, we're going to let you work, work it out down there, and you can kind of work your way back up. And over the course of a, of a few years, he actually did. He worked his way back up, worked it back up, worked it back up. Finally, I think it was three years later, got all the way back up to the major leagues, pitched at the very end of the season, and everybody thought coming into the next season, great, we're going to have this great pitcher now finally, and he's still relatively young because he started out so early. But over the offseason, he decided he just couldn't handle it anymore. Pitching was too much pressure. He just wasn't going to do it. And so he was going to retire at something like the age of 25. Well, they talked to him. They said, you know, you're a really talented athlete. We'd love to see you stay. We want to keep at it. How about you try playing a different position? We'll try to make you an outfielder. We think you can be a good hitter. And he said, okay, well, we'll try it. So he went all the way back down to the lowest level of minor leagues again. And now for his third time, worked his way up. And finally made it up to the major leagues again. This whole ordeal took something like six, six years going back and forth, back and forth. Finally, he reached the major leagues. And, and the anniversary, like I said, was just about a week ago. I remember his first game in the major leagues. You can imagine everybody was overjoyed that he was back and, and very supportive. And in that very first game, he hit a home run, a three-run homer. And it was just a glorious occasion. It was a great story of redemption. Somebody who had failed miserably but then had seen things work out 
to a glorious end. We love redemption stories, don't we? We love them because don't we all want a shot at redemption? Whether it's some relationship that we've ruined or whether it's some other failure in our life, whether it's a chance that we didn't take and we passed up an opportunity, we all want a shot at redemption. We want to believe that in spite of our failures, there is still a chance for us. We still have an opportunity for things to work out. We're hardwired that way, I think, because that really is the story of the gospel. As we mentioned earlier in the Westminster Shorter Catechism reading, that we we have all sinned every day, and God requires our absolute faithfulness, so, so we are all failures when it comes to this standard of holiness that is demanded of us. And yet, God has provided a way of redemption for us in the gospel. And in this text today, we see a sort of microcosm of that, a picture of the beauty of the gospel of redemption. Follow along with me now as I read from the inspired word of God. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths contained in it and pray that right now you would be working in our hearts in such a manner that eyes that perhaps were previously blind would be opened and ears that had been stopped will no longer be deaf to your truth. And for all of us, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to better understand what you would have us know and that we would see the gospel of redemption in a new way this morning, in a larger way than we've ever seen it, in a more beautiful and vibrant way than perhaps we have ever viewed it, that we might love you more to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I said that this passage that I just read is kind of a microcosm of the gospel, and if you followed along as I read from it, you might be saying, I I don't get it. That doesn't really seem like a microcosm of the gospel. What exactly do you mean by that, Pete? And that's a legitimate question because on a surface reading, you really can't see it. It requires us digging a little bit deeper. Uh, in, in this passage, we see three men who are highlighted that, that send their greetings. Uh, Aristarchus, Mark, and a man named Jesus who is called Justice. And we know certain things about these three men from the scriptures in general, and certain things in particular from verse 11. We see here in verse 11, it says that these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. and They've been a comfort to me. So we see that they are first of the circumcision. That is, they are Jews. They are 
They are Jews in background, not Gentiles like many of the others. Next week we'll actually take a look at three more people. They're Gentiles. So we've got kind of two different groups that we're looking at this week and next week. This week is three Jewish people who have worked with Paul. Next week will be three Gentiles. Uh, we, We see that they are the only ones among the Jews that are still serving with Paul to advance the kingdom of God, to to exalt God in that way. They are fellow workers with him. He's saying that, that they have served alongside him. But he's not just saying that they have served alongside him. Paul also is telling us that they have served him directly. They have been a comfort to me, he says in verse 11. Now, what is it exactly that required comfort for Paul? Well, you might recall that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 some of the things that he has faced in his service of Christ Jesus as he has brought the gospel of Christ Jesus to the world. These are some of the things that he has faced. Imprisonments with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I have received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Boy. When I feel sorry for myself and the difficulties that I face, it's beneficial for me to look to someone like Paul and to be reminded that the troubles that I face might not be quite so bad as I think they are. They come from a a perspective of having been privileged with a very good life, a very wonderful existence. And I fear they come from a perspective of feeling entitled to such things. I should look to Paul and see what he's endured for the sake of the gospel and realize that God has not called me to anything extraordinary as far as my sufferings and my trials and my persecutions. And now Paul is in prison. And in prison is specifically where he is saying that these three men have been a comfort to him and they, of course, are right to have done so. Not because he is the great Apostle Paul. Not even because he is a dear friend of theirs. But simply because he is a brother in Christ. Remember what our Lord said in Matthew 15. When speaking of the final judgment, he says, The king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And of course, we'll remember that Jesus says that that the righteous will say to him, Lord, when, when did we ever do these things for you? 
And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Christ is saying whenever we serve another Christian, a member of the body of Christ, we are not just serving that individual. We are serving Christ directly. We are helping him. We are clothing him. We are feeding him. We are visiting him. We are comforting him when we do that to our brother and sister in Christ. Let that be a reminder to us. Let that be uh, uh, an encouragement to us, a motivation to us. And Jesus says to them in this example that you who are on my right have done this. You are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. Now is he saying that they will inherit the kingdom of God because they've been nice to him? Kind of a tit-for-tat type deal. Well, since you were nice to me, I'll be nice to you. Of course not. That's not what he's saying. The, The constant message of Scripture is that you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not of works. It is a gift from God alone. We said the same this morning in reading from the Catechism. Our salvation comes by faith alone. It is not by works. But what he is saying here is that you who have served me by serving the church, by serving your brother and sister in Christ, have done so because of the grace you have experienced. You, in response to my love, have shown love for others. And if we truly understand the love of Christ, then we have to love him. And he's saying, if you truly love me, then you will love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I know when I look at my life, and perhaps when you look at yours, that's not always easy. There are times when there are people who kind of rub you the wrong way. There are times when there are people who who even do things to actively hurt you or harm you or cause you difficulties. And yet Jesus calls us here to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. For that's what he did with us, is it not? We were rebels against him. We were his enemies. And though we were his enemies... He loved us. And let our understanding of that love motivate us and empower us to love one another. For when we love one another, we love Christ Jesus. And that really is the goal in preaching. When I get up here to preach, I'm not just trying to share something from you, uh, with you from the Bible so that your your knowledge of the Bible might be increased. And maybe at a Bible trivia night, you might win instead of coming in second place. That's not my goal. I don't want you to just learn the things that are in the Bible, to know more Bible stories. I don't just want to tell you, well, the Bible says do this, this, and this, and don't do this, this, and this. And I want this to be some kind of behavior modification process. That's not what I'm looking for. 
Certainly there are behaviors that you ought to do and other behaviors that you ought not to do, and I certainly want you to know about those and to follow through on those things. But what I am most desiring to accomplish when I preach is I want, no matter where you are right now, no matter where you were in your heart as you entered the doors of this sanctuary, It is my hope and my goal and my passion and my desire and my prayer that as you walk out of this sanctuary, you will love Christ Jesus more than you did when you entered the sanctuary. That is the whole purpose of preaching in my mind. That you might love Jesus more. That you might see the beauty of his gospel. See what he has done for us. And that in turn, because of this love, you might more fully give your life over to him. That you might desire and long to follow him with all that you have and with all that you are. Because he has so loved you. And to that end, let us take a quick look at these three individuals. We see, first of all, Aristarchus. In verse 10, Paul says he is a fellow prisoner. Of course, we know that Paul is in prison at this time, and so very likely Aristarchus is in prison with him, but he is a fellow prisoner in another sense as well. Paul often refers to himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and so it is that we should all be. When you are a prisoner, you you no longer get to set your own agenda. If you're in prison, the one who has you in prison is the one who tells you when you eat and when you do different activities and that person limits the activities that you do and and frees you up to do other activities and such. And so it is, if we are to be prisoners of Christ Jesus, he is the one who ought to guide and direct all that we do. And so it is that Aristarchus is a fellow prisoner of Paul's. He's mentioned also in Philemon, which makes sense because the letter to Philemon was, was also sent at the same time with this letter to the Colossians, and so it makes sense that these similar greetings would be found in both of them. And we find him mentioned throughout the book of Acts as well as a common travel companion of Paul's. As Paul is going on his missionary journeys, we find him in Acts 19 in Ephesus. And the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So we see that he was a Macedonian who was a companion of Paul's in travel. But not just that, he was proclaiming the gospel boldly enough that as the city disintegrated into a riot, he was dragged off for having proclaimed the truths of Christ Jesus and salvation through him alone. And we see him again In chapter 20, he's mentioned along with a number of others. And then finally in chapter 27 of Acts, we find him one more time. Here we are now toward the end of Paul's ministry as he's heading on his fourth missionary journey, heading to Rome. And we see embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to set sail to ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And so it is that this Aristarchus has been a faithful companion to Paul. 
We see throughout the course of his ministry, he has been there beside him. He has endured hardship with him. He has proclaimed truth. And let the, let the circumstances, even though they were difficult, not hinder him. This is the kind of man Aristarchus was. He sends his greetings. As does another man, Jesus, called Justice. Now, we don't know much about him. He's hardly mentioned at all. We find him here. It is interesting, though, to note, I think, that his name is Jesus. We see that. It kind of throws us off, I think. Uh, you know, we, we don't think that that's kind of like a normal name that normal people should get. But it really was a normal name in that day. It was the, the Greek form of the name Joshua, which which is really what Jesus would have been called. You know, in, in Hebrew, it's Yeshua is how it's pronounced. But that, that's what Mary and Joseph would have called Jesus, Yeshua. He, he would have been Josh, basically. That, that's what he was. And so, so we have just kind of a common, ordinary name for Jesus, which, which seems so wrong to us, doesn't it? That he, would have, he should have a different, an other name. He should be somehow different than the rest of us. But I think there's a truth for us to see in there that's very, very important. Though he was other, though he was God himself, the second person of the Trinity, he took on human flesh. And when he did that, he didn't do some other kind of human, some kind of third type of thing that's part God, part man. He became fully human while still retaining his divinity. He was fully human. When Jesus was a little boy, he was just like a little baby that you would hold in your arms today. I remember when my son Jack was born, and I, I, I remember this vivid picture I got one time as I was changing his diapers. He was on the changing table, and, and I sat there and looked at him, this little tiny baby, and it, it hit me in a way that it had never hit me. Of course, I knew that Jesus had been a little baby. We all know that. It just takes one Christmas for you to know that, right? Jesus was a little baby. But on that day, as I sat there and looked at my son, not as long as my shoulders are broad, it hit me. The God of the universe, he who created all things by the power of his word, for our sake and for his glory took on human flesh and became like this little baby whose diaper I was about to change. It's staggering that he would so condescend to do that. He had to have his diapers changed. And as he was growing up, he had headaches and runny noses the bully in the neighborhood probably picked on him. And he had to endure all the trials and temptations that you and I endure. He was a real human being. In fact, he's still a real human being. As he reigns now at the Father's right hand, he does so in a resurrected body but it is a 
body nonetheless. And he is truly human as he sits at the Father's right hand, even at this very moment. Albeit with scars in his hand and feet, to remind us of his great sacrifice on our behalf when he paid for our sins on Calvary's cross. And oh, what a wonderful thing it will be when we behold him as he returns. I long for that day, and so should you. We see this Jesus called justice. And we are reminded of this other Jesus who was like Jesus called justice, a man. He became fully human. You know, it's interesting. We said that the name Jesus is a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. And, and there, of course, was in the Old Testament a Joshua that we can look to. And, and it's interesting as we consider who Joshua was and what he did. He, of course, was with Israel when they crossed the Red Sea, which Paul later refers to as a baptism of the nation of Israel. And then he, with Israel, spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness until finally beginning at the Jordan River, he began his duty, his responsibility, his ministry, if you will, of leading the people of God into the promised land. If we look at Jesus in Mark's gospel, for instance, this New Testament Joshua, we see that the Gospel of Mark begins at the Jordan River, where Jesus is baptized, followed by 40 days in the wilderness, where he is tempted and tried in every way, after which he begins his ministry of leading his people into the promised land, the very presence of God. It is not coincidence that these two things are the case. The Old Testament Joshua serves to point us forward to the New Testament Joshua, even Jesus. Because all of Scripture serves to point us to Christ, his person, and his work. We need to remember that. That's what Jesus says to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after he has died and risen and they don't realize he's there and they don't know that it's him. And he says that all of the law and all of the prophets point to me. And so it is that as we read the scriptures, we should remember that always. And we see that when we compare this Old Testament Joshua with the Gospel of Mark. And I suppose we should look at Mark real quickly too. The person. For the Gospel of Mark was written by this same Mark that is mentioned here by Paul. He's mentioned also in Philemon. Uh, in that same passage that Aristarchus has mentioned. And he's mentioned throughout the book of Acts as well. Now, we see him in Acts 12 mentioned as, as being John Mark. Uh, oftentimes people uh, in that day had two names, uh, one that was acceptable both to Greeks and to Hebrews. And, and 
We see that in Acts 12, he had a mother named Mary, and it was at this Mary's house that the people in the church would often gather to meet and to pray, to be with one another. And so he was raised in this surrounding. And, and actually, we, we learn in today's passage that he was cousins with Barnabas, who traveled with Saul on missionary journeys. And we look in Acts 12 and see that, that actually Mark went with them on some of these missionary journeys. But as we get to Acts 15, we see something happened. Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and they're, they're getting ready to head out to visit the churches that they had planted. And it says that Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You see, at some point in Pamphylia, Mark had abandoned Paul and Barnabas. We don't know if it was out of cowardice. We don't know if it was disloyalty, what, what exactly it was that, that motivated it, but he had abandoned them. And Paul didn't think it was wise to take them with him. And there arose, we're told, a sharp disagreement. And it's kind of interesting to think of Barnabas and Paul, these great pillars of the early church, having a sharp disagreement with each other. Voices were probably raised. And they argued, disagreed, separated, and went their separate ways. Paul taking Silas, Barnabas taking Mark. And so the relationship between Paul and Mark seemed fractured, broken. Could it ever be restored? Well, gloriously and wonderfully, yes, indeed. Our God is a God of redemption, a God of reconciliation. And so we see here in Colossians 4 that their relationship indeed was restored because we see that here as he sends these greetings, he sends them also from Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. And he says, concerning whom you've received instructions. Likely those instructions are the instructions that say, you know, you really can't trust this Mark guy. He abandoned us. Be careful, don't give him too much authority because he'll mess things up. But what does Paul say here? He says, you've received instructions, but I tell you now, if he comes to you, welcome him. He is no longer unwelcome, but rather welcomed. And, and it is even a more beautiful thing that we see when we read 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life, he is literally months, maybe even weeks away from being executed at this point. And he sends for Timothy, his beloved companion, says, Timothy, come to me. Come to me and see me before I am executed. And in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 11, he says, Luke alone is with me. He is alone, longing for Timothy's company. And what does he say? Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. What a beautiful story of redemption, isn't it? The same Mark who had abandoned him. The same Mark over whom he and Barnabas had sharp disagreement. Paul is able to now say, bring him to me. For he is useful in ministry. How did this redemption come about? Was it perhaps the loving support of Barnabas? Maybe. Was it perhaps 
the stern discipline of Paul? Perhaps. Perhaps it was both of them. And perhaps it was a third thing too. We know from tradition and from history and from the word of God itself that one of the major influences on Mark's life was that of the Apostle Peter. And could there have been a better person for Mark to fall in with than Peter? Having failed so miserably, is there anybody who could have spoken to him more encouragingly about failure not being final? For Peter, of course, on the night that our Lord was betrayed, denied Christ Jesus three times. Denied that he even knew him. And yet Christ, after he rose from the dead, saw fit to elicit from Peter three affirmations of love and then to reinstate Peter and to use him as one of the primary pillars upon which the church has been built by Christ. What a great story of redemption he is. Of course he would be the one that could encourage Mark the best. And what a beautiful thing that God would in his wisdom, in his providence, bring Peter and Mark together, that Peter could be this influence in Mark's life. And what a wonderful gift of God that he would give us this story, that we would be able to look to the word of God and know that just because we have failed, our failure need not be final. For no matter how bad we have failed in the past, our sin is not greater than God's grace. Christ Jesus died for our sins, and there is no sin that you have committed that is too great for God's love, too great for his grace, too great for Christ's cross. And perhaps you're saying, you don't know, Pete. You don't know what I have done. You don't know what skeletons I have in my closet. You don't know what things I shudder to tell anybody. You don't know the evil that I have perpetrated. And you're right, I don't know. But God does. And he is determined that no matter what you have done, if you would trust in Christ Jesus and in him alone for salvation, and salvation is yours. And that, my friends, is the greatest story of redemption. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for your great story of redemption. We thank you that you invite us to be involved in that story, not as those who bring about redemption, but as the objects of your redemption. What a glorious gift that is. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense to us. And yet it is so. We have your word. What an amazing love it is that you have shown us. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
and yet you have. And so we rejoice. To you be all the glory. In Christ's name, amen.